Hi, I'm Andrew Muir, Creative Director at Ardent Theatre. If you enjoy this show, please share, subscribe and leave us a five-star review. Thanks for listening. Under apartheid, all South Africans had a racial category. White, Asian, coloured or native. One way to determine this was the pencil test. A pencil is pushed into your hair and if it falls out, you're white. If not, you're native. If you can shake it out, you're coloured, maybe. Different racial categories had to live apart, so families could be separated based on how easily the pencil stuck. Journalist Thapello Moloantoa and historian Wayne Dooling both grew up under this system. People were being forcibly removed. My schoolmates were being evicted from their houses. They kick you out this way, but your home is the other side. And you can't go towards that direction because military trucks shooting tear gas in that direction. I'm Andrew Muir, and this is Activism in the 80s, where we chart the protests and culture wars that changed lives in Britain, Ireland, and South Africa. In this episode, Wayne and Thapello tell human rights campaigner Zita Holborn about life under apartheid when the pencil didn't fall out. Here's Wayne Dooling. I was in Cape Town, which is where I was born and grew up. And the secondary school I attended was a school called Livingston, Livingston High School, which was an interesting school because it was in a neighborhood of Cape Town that had been declared a white area, group areas, in terms of the Group Areas Act. But the school survived for various reasons, mainly as a consequence of resistance by school teachers and the broader community. But the neighborhood was interesting in that people were being forcibly removed. My schoolmates were being evicted from their houses during their secondary school years. So the school, in a sense, became an island in this particular neighborhood. Education then, it sounds like, been very disruptive if you're having to go through evictions and move. For very many people, yes, mm. education was highly disrupted. But by then, uh, most people, so when I got to high school, this was the sort of tail end of forced removals, and most people had already been removed. But for us at secondary school, the consequence was that most people had to travel a great distance to get to school. Some students still lived in the neighbourhood and were being served eviction orders, but the majority had already been evicted from their homes and, like I said, had to come a great distance. And Tapila, so you were quite young, given that you were just at primary school. What are your recollections of that period? Do you relate to the things that Wayne's saying in terms of the disruption and, and issues? Did that impact on you as a young child? My memory of the era at the beginning of the 80s was witnessing the, what I may call the repercussions of the riots of June 16 and after 1976. So we had buildings that were still burned out as a result of the 76 riots. Beer halls, which were government-sponsored places where the adult population was expected, not expected, but in a way the government was using alcohol to take people's minds off liberation. So those became targets and at the time, a lot of them were still bent out. You know, my uncle was one of the people who, who was in the forefront of that movement. Now and then, there would be news about a guerrilla attack by ANC and PEC. It was only towards 
the middle of the 80s that the activity around resistance was really, it picked up a lot. Wayne, I had a specific question for you because I know that you went to a university that was predominantly white and I wanted to ask, how was that? What was your experience in that situation? So the university I went to was the University of Cape Town, which was and still is today one of South Africa's most prestigious universities. Um, And it was a university that was predominantly white and it was, of course, built and established to reproduce the white elite. When I went, when I, my first year at university was in 1985, it was at the tail end of a requirement that black students, and by black I mean all students, not white, were only allowed into the university under special dispensation. So the state, uh, South African state, had established a number of black universities. And so in Cape Town, the alternative university for people of my ethnicity was the University of the Western Cape. And in order to not go to the University of the Western Cape, you had to make a special case for your particular chosen study path. But in terms of my experience, it was a very segregated university. Well over 70 or 80% of students were white and the staff component was even higher than that. There were very, very few members of staff who were not white. So it meant that one was always in a minority, of course, in a country where you weren't in the minority, but certainly at university, your experience was one of being in a minority. Uh, it was one of being quite alienated or alien from the general environment. It also meant for most black students having to travel huge distances. I had to travel something like 30 kilometers to get to class at 8.15, I remember vividly. It wasn't oh. easy. <laughs> um, Must have been up all night. <laughs> and um, it also meant that my experience of being a student was very different to the experience of being a white student mm. at many different levels. So we barely participated in the social life of the university and sports and things like that that are part of a student's life that are not directly related to academic study. Some of it was voluntary non-participation. We actively chose not to participate in the sporting life of the university as a mark of protest against apartheid education generally. Um, But it also meant that one didn't live in residence, um, so that aspect of social life was greatly reduced. So in terms of everyday life, it was really one of going to university and going home. Focused Uh, on the studying. And focused on the studying, except for occasions as political resistance and the township rebellion really took off. So You're already leading into my next question, that's great. (laughs) (laughs) So, So, of course, those were moments when one's engagement with university transcended study, but for the rest it was really about studying and going home. Well, it must have been very tough, but you got there and you resisted and, yeah, broke the system, so that's important. You linked into the next thing I was going to ask you both. We know that opposition and unrest continued through the 80s and then, as you've said, in the middle of the decade, around 1985, the South African government declared this state of emergency and I wanted to ask you, what do you remember of that, Tepelu? The state of emergency was quite a hectic time. From 83 onwards, you started seeing pamphlets, people talking, always hanging around older people. You hear, oh, ANC, Lusaka, Tanzania, 
or somebody has left to join the, the liberation movement in exile. And um, around 84, 85, that's when school disruptions really intensified. So we would generally be in school and comrades, older guys would come and essentially kick us out of school. Scary period because for the first few times it was a new experience and sometimes you face a situation where they kick you out this way but your home is the other side and you can't go towards that direction because there's already hippo hippo is a um, casper military trucks shooting tear gas in that direction so you you're forced not to go home so sometimes you'd run off to a friend's house you just have to wait until it was just safe wait until things quieten down but I remember sometimes we would run to a friend's house whose house was actually next to a high school. We should have been a lot more volatile. And on the streets, it was very volatile. I saw a lot of people shot for doing nothing, basically being provoked by these security forces because a lot of youth would be in the streets, which would then prompt these patrolling uh, security forces to ignite trouble with them. As Wayne might recall, the South African townships, a hippo would be driving down one street and shooting into every street wherever they see a group of people. At the time, the state of emergency said, if it's more than five of you, you are comrades. So... Mm-hmm. If you gather, yeah. Yeah. It was very easy for the state to cordon off areas because townships had been built. Uh, certainly as a grid, but the main design language of townships was to control people. So townships, when they were laid out and constructed, they were constructed with elements of control in mind. So where I grew up for part of my childhood was an area called Mitchell's Plain, which is a big so-called coloured township. You only needed to seal off four or five roads to entrap an entire population. So it was very easy for the police to contain very large numbers of people with actually fairly limited resources. I mean, certainly these were years that were incredibly volatile. It's not that the country experienced sort of all-out rebellion all the time, but that rebellion was always present with varying rates of intensity in different parts of the country. Johannesburg, Cape Town, Port Elizabeth, East London, all these cities didn't all move at the same kind of speed. Mm-hmm. Something was yeah. always happening somewhere, mm. but not necessarily all at once. All the time. Were you involved in any of the resistance actions? I know you've talked about being forced to leave school. Were you or your families involved in any of the actions mm. and resistance and alternative governance to the apartheid regime? Yeah, I was not at the age that I could have mm. actively took part. But otherwise, my family was to certain degrees involved. I had my uncle who was involved in the youth movement. A lot of his peers went to jail, exile. He was stopped from going to exile by my grandfather after seeing him jumping into what we call a kumbi minibus at my grandfather's house, and he pulled him out of there. Otherwise, there were people who would be wanted, and my father would house them certain periods. My father was involved in the street committees of the mid-80s, which were essentially part of self-governance within the townships. So people would not be taken to the justice system because it was seen as collaboration. So there were people's courts. Whenever there would be a funeral, 
it would be preceded by a night vigil where all the youth would be almost, they wouldn't have, wouldn't have much of a choice but to go, especially the boys. So my brother would often be picked up late at night. Yeah, my mom, she was a little bit more involved later as a health advisor at the South African Bishops' Conference towards the 90s. And their offices were bombed by the security forces. So your family were really quite active. So even though you were a young child, you would have had that influence and impact of your family being involved. Yeah, there were other families who were a lot more involved. People Mm. went to Robben Island, people left for exile, families broken up. But at that time, I always say, the involvement was not much of a choice because it's yeah. the environment what that you can live you do? in. Yeah, exactly. You've you know got to I mean? stand up for yourself and yeah. survive. Exactly. Yeah. How about you when you talked a bit about university as well and um, some resistance yeah, there? Yes, so I wasn't directly involved in political organisations, but I was very much in the milieu of resistance. And the secondary school, high school that I attended was highly politicised uh, mm. school and the teachers at the school. That was the world in, in which I grew up. But then I also lived in a completely different part of the city called Mitchell's Plain, which is where the UDF, the United Democratic Front, was launched. And I very vividly remember attending the launch of that organization because the Civic Center where it was launched was only about 10 or 15 minutes walk from where I lived mm. at the time. In the second half of the 1980s at university, the political influences were more so varied. So the big concern at university in the second half of the 1980s was the academic boycott. But there were lots of rallies and political meetings throughout the 1980s and especially during the state of emergency. So the historically white universities were far more protected and didn't have the sort of police intrusion onto campuses from time to time. Police came onto campus and one, I remember very vividly one occasion, police came onto campus right into the library where we were all studying and sort of shot tear gas into the library. But it was nothing like the kind of brutality that people at the University of the Western Cape, for example, Mm. and all other black universities experienced. And that kind of connects to how I got involved in the anti-apartheid movement here in the UK because the wider boycott campaign is how I got involved in as a student. And in the early 80s, I visited South Africa. I was actually on my way to Lesotho, where my father was living, and had to go through apartheid in Johannesburg Airport. And then I visited Bloemfontein, while I was staying in Lesotho and experienced and witnessed apartheid firsthand. And as somebody who's got a black mother and a white father, it was difficult. And I was only there for a short time. And and obviously you also, in the apartheid era, classified in different ways in, in terms of how you were both individually labelled as black and coloured. What were your communications like or what contact did you have with people that were classified in a different way to you, whether that's white, Indian, coloured or black? The way apartheid work, of course, was very much to keep people with these different designations, ethnic and racial labels, to keep them apart. And if one just lived one's daily life without sort of consciously seeking to break those boundaries, it would have been very easy and certainly possible to 
by and large, keep contact to a minimum. Now, of course, a lot of people came into contact with people of different racial categories in their everyday lives, simply through work and so forth. You know, domestic servants most famously went into white households every single day of their lives. But for myself as a school student, it was extremely easy, never ever to come to contact with a student who was given another racial designation, unless one actively sought to do that. And the school that I was at did, on occasion, seek to do that through uh, sporting events, for example. So the short answer is, it could happen, but you had to make it happen. It didn't kind of happen by itself. Yes. How about you, Tapelo? What was your experience? Yeah, uh, equally so, because the apartheid spatial planning development was such that each grouping had to be exclusively living within that specific area. So every town had town for white people. And a little bit outside the town, there's a black or African, as it was then described, colored and an Indian locality. So there was not much of interaction, except when we would go to my father's boss's house. The colored township, we would often drive through, but not necessarily stop over at somebody's house. My father would know some people there and in the Indian community. So we might go with him, but, you know, stay in the car while he goes mm. for a reason. So you wouldn't have a direct interaction. Yeah, so there was not really much of a day-to-day until later, towards the early 90s, that things started opening up. But generally speaking, I remember seeing other races in football matches because football, for some odd reason, never really was as highly segregated as rugby and cricket. You got to know a lot of other races through football. So sport, bringing people but, together. Um, sport certainly did bring people together, but at the same time there were very many organisations, like black organisations, that argued very vehemently against um, normalising this kind of sporting interaction, particularly strong in Cape Town, an organisation called SACOS, mm. the South African Council on Sport. And they had a motto that said, no normal sport in an abnormal society. So in a, in a sense, you had a, a slightly contradictory position to take because in, in a segregated sport, if you followed that line, and all these things are contradictions. And then the, the international <laughs> yes. boycott campaign, boycotting sporting activities was because of the segregation to, yeah. to stand up against that. Yeah, these organisations campaigned very strongly, for example, to continue to keep South Africa out of the Olympics and basically continue to make South African sport a kind of international pariah. And it, it did so very successfully. White South African players who wanted to participate in the Olympics had to embark on all kinds of dubious campaigns to get foreign citizenship. So you're talking about sport and the part that sport played politically, but I had a question about sport, entertainment, leisure from a perspective of self-care in the midst of all of this upheaval and horrendous human rights breaches and civil unrest and the apartheid regime upon you, was there space, was there time for you to have leisure, to do things for self-care, to bring joy collectively in your communities and families? And, you know, if there was, what did you do? We'll start with Wayne. There certainly was opportunity for leisure. For a lot of people, sport would have been a big, uh, the, the single biggest expression or avenue for leisure. Football, first and foremost, but for women, netball. Um, 
My mother played netball, for example, and was quite involved in girls' school netball. In a city like Cape Town, going to the beach was a very big part of social life during the summer months. And of course, I have to add, <laughs> Pyramus, highly segregated beaches in Cape Town. So there was the perverse experience of doing something really joyful, i.e. going to the beach, mm. but at the same time experience the humiliations that go with going to a segregated beach. And of course, it doesn't take a genius to work out that the best beaches were not available to black people. One had one's experiences of being forcibly removed from beaches and picnic places. But yes, that was part of leisure. And, and so there was, a, there was a very real sense in which apartheid was highly successful in normalizing everyday life. Mm. It's not like you question these things every day of your life. Um, you just lived life and tried to go to school, go to work, have days off within this perverse social system. A lot of people, of course, engaged in leisure that was highly destructive, drink and drugs and all kinds of other things. So that was a, a leisure pursuit as well, you know, smoking marijuana across the country, highly <laughs> um, practiced form of leisure. Um, so, yeah, pe people did all kinds of things. Mm. And with trauma, you know, that with comes... Yeah. Mm. Yeah, yeah, I mean, it comes, like I said, highly destructive and came at a cost. But I'd mm. say probably the non-destructive things would be sports first and foremost. Mm. Um, and then picnics, activities, going to the beach. And Tapela, how about um, yourself? It was quite a, an era full of contrasts, actually, because the state was trying to say to you that this is normal. So a lot of people fell into that, whereas there was another section of society that said, no, we cannot accept this type of lifestyle. So you had what would normally be considered everyday life activities like music concerts, football, entertainment generally, even though it was within confined spaces. Mm. I recall times when the UDF instructed the townships to beautify the townships. It was during an era where there was a lot of graffiti around during the UDF, people's power. They wanted to cover it all up. And, uh, not necessarily cover it up, but within these spaces, the idea was to create green spaces. For instance, where there's a T-junction, that little space in the middle, just I do recall lots of people doing that and naming them after the leaders in exile. Okay. Our one was called Tambo People's Park. Like that, green spaces of resistance. Yeah, so there was that urge towards living life. Exactly. I think the main point is on the pillow made that is, these things are really very contradictory that, you know, you could enjoy. I mean, mm. Tupelo reminded me of music as a very big form of leisure and in, this, yeah. in the way that it is for youth the world over. Absolutely. Um, and so in that sense, the leisure activities of black people in South Africa were not unique. But what was unique was that these activities were exercised in highly segregated spaces. So if you went to a nightclub, disco, jazz concert, whatever, they'd all be segregated. So if you went to a jazz club in the Cape Flats of Cape Town, it would be an all-coloured jazz club. But, you know, it didn't stop people from having a good time. And also from uh, musicians producing the most kind of amazing artistic pieces. 
And one could even say that these confines or people being restricted in the way that they were pushed them on to higher levels of artistic excellence. So as we get towards the end of the 1990s, you've still got the state of emergency, but you've had this whole decade of resistance and people coming together to oppose the apartheid regime. And looking back, you could effectively look back historically and say it was inevitable that Nelson Mandela was going to be freed and that apartheid was going to come to an end soon, given all the, of that resistance and campaigning, plus an international you know, um, boycott campaign to support black people in South Africa. Do you think, though, for yourselves, at the time, living through that decade, that it was inevitable that was going to be the case. Tepela, start with you. Um, there were a lot of indications for the end of apartheid to happen because at that time, the mass democratic movement had gained an upper hand on the streets. So whereas before, any gatherings of more than five, 10, 15 people would be essentially uh, regarded as a gathering of comrades. Towards the end of the 80s, there would actually be marches in town, more T-shirts being worn, ANC flag being openly seen. Mm -hmm. Uh, So people feeling very empowered and... Empowered, yeah. yeah. So the leadership, um, you know, you're talking of a leadership from civic movements, The level of organization at that time was very highly structured. In almost every urban area, black, colored, and Indian, there'd be a local youth organization, a local women's organization, the civic association, the UDF, the local teachers association. So you saw a lot of that activity, hosting events. The funerals would not be shot at as much as they used to. I remember we often climbed on top of the, because every house had a, the toilet was outside. So we'd climb on the roof to see the processions to the graveyard and back. And in the midst of the 84, 85, 86, those would get shot up and more people die. But towards the end of the 80s, the processions would go on. Mandela's face was still bent, but uh, I saw Mandela's face in school on the wall for the first time. And my father was traveling to Botswana, Lesotho a lot, and he'd bring back music, you know, band music. People would start playing it without, I mean, it was still banned, but you wouldn't have done that in the earlier parts of the 80s. So there was that general feeling that uh, things were changing, even though they were not by law. And then when Sisulu and... uh, and Mkwai and Mutuping of the PAC were released. That was a huge indicator that things are about to change. Ditlek came into power. Did you feel that way? Um, uh, I think I probably differ slightly from Tapelo. Okay. Is, uh, <laughs> um, certainly everything Tapelo said is absolutely correct, but for me the emphasis would be on the overwhelming power that the state still had and didn't mm. kind of hesitate to deploy. My experiences of the late 1980s as that things just became much more intense. But certainly in my own mind, I didn't think that the end of apartheid was around the corner either. I thought this could go on for many years. And with hindsight, it probably could have gone on for many years. 
I think the entire country was hugely surprised by the clerk's announcement when it came in February of 1990. I certainly was surprised, mm. and I, I don't think I was the only one. So I, whilst not disagreeing with anything that the fellow said, I, I could certainly imagine the state that was prepared to continue okay. this kind of repression for a long time. Powerful memories there from Wayne Dooling and Thapello Moloantoa, reliving experiences that many of us can barely imagine. Thanks to Thapolo and Wayne for their candid testimony and to Zita Holborn for guiding us through the conversation. In the next episode of Activism in the 80s, we look back on a bruising decade for British trade unions. The miners' strike perhaps was the worst because I've never seen such a desperate wish from communities right throughout the land wanting the miners to win. The miners have a special place in the heart of ordinary working people. And once they were defeated, it was really, really bleak. Get the next episode of Activism in the 80s now, wherever you get your podcasts. Activism in the 80s is a podcast series recorded in response to the play Strike, written by Tracy Ryan and produced by Ardent Theatre Company at the Southwark Playhouse London in April 2023. This series has been funded by the National Lottery Heritage Fund and was produced by Creative Kin.